When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, January 24th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, there are fewer overall education vacancies this year, but a recent report suggests more Mississippi teachers could be eyeing the exit. Then emergency officials use a mock disaster to prepare for a worst-case scenario. Plus, January is Braille Literacy Month. We learn more about teaching the code to Mississippi's visually impaired youth. Mississippi continues to face a teacher shortage, and more than half of educators are considering a career change within the coming year. That's according to the new I'm the Exit survey conducted by the nonprofit, nonpartisan organization Mississippi First. Torn Ballard is their K-12 policy director. In part one of our conversation on teacher attrition, we examine one of the key factors driving them from the classroom, money. In order to get a really good idea of what teachers are actually dealing with, I figured that the best way was to go to teachers themselves and ask them these questions directly. So we wrote this big questionnaire that had questions, everything from financial well-being, career plans, policy preferences. And then we went out and we emailed almost every teacher in the state. We kind of made our own email list of teachers across the state um, and then administered this survey over email in late 2021, so like December 2021. Um, And then we managed to actually get tons of responses. Teachers really wanted to share their story. We got almost almost 7,000 responses. Uh, To put that into perspective, that's about one in five teachers across the state. So this data that we were able to get from all these survey responses really just creates what is a goldmine of information for understanding just all aspects of the profession and the challenges that teachers are facing. Okay, so let's talk about some of the results of what you determined or what you were able to find out. The survey's called Eyeing the Exit, Teacher Turnover and What We Can Do About It. We do have a critical teacher shortage Uh, And basically, based upon this survey, it explains who will leave and why and why Mm -hmm. teachers don't leave and they're not in it for the money. But money seems to be the key issue here, is it not? Yeah, I do think money is really one of the underlying issues here. 
So as we mentioned in the survey, I think our most urgent finding up front is that over half of teachers that we surveyed say that they were either somewhat or very likely to leave the profession within the next 12 months. So these were teachers who were considering teaching out of state, taking another job in education, or just leaving the profession entirely. When we look at who these teachers are, they tend to be teachers who are black or other teachers of color. They tend to be teachers in the middle of their career. They tend to teach at D and F rated districts. They tend to have student debt, and they also tend to struggle to afford basic necessities. So we really see this direct connection with financial well-being and people who are considering exiting the classroom. Now, I should say, we did collect this data directly before the teacher pay raise was passed last year. But when we did a follow-up survey last month, we saw the same percentage of teachers saying that they were considering leaving the classroom. And that and raise so was that, about $5,000 on average? Yeah, it was about $5,100. So yeah, a little over $5,000, which is the largest single year teacher pay raise that has ever been passed in Mississippi. Finding number one you have here, half of Mississippi teachers reported they struggled to afford basic necessities, food, housing, transportation, medical expenses. So is there a range, salary range that you found when you did this? Yeah. So actually, probably better than a more reliable figure there than using the the salary range, which we did ask for, was we asked for teachers' years of experience. And using the salary scale, we can basically see pretty much exactly what these teachers make. And we also asked for their district. So if they made like a salary supplement, we could also see that you know, they may earned a little more depending on where they live. And what was really interesting there was that the teachers who were struggling the most and actually more likely to leave the classroom were teachers in kind of the early middle part of their career. So it wasn't teachers who were like, you know, rookie or second year teachers. And it also was not teachers who were, you know, maybe like 20 years into the profession. It was really those teachers who are, you know, maybe like six to 11 years into the profession. So they've had a few years of step races, but they also have more expenses than a lot of other teachers. They're more likely to have families and all the expenses that we know are associated with that. And they were also more likely to have student debt, which obviously comes with often very large monthly payments. Another finding was the student loan debt. Uh, um, A lot of teachers have student loan debt, and that is a critical concern for them. So what kinds of jobs are they taking if they leave the teaching profession? Yes. So, you know, generally we ask what people are interested in. So we had plenty of teachers who were thinking about teaching in another state, teaching in or taking another job in education, maybe even within Mississippi, or leaving the profession entirely. Now, where we actually saw the biggest difference between teachers who did and didn't have student debt is that if you have student debt, you're actually way more likely to be considering taking that other job in education. So considering a role like administration, for instance. And that's great for our pipeline of principals and administrators in the state, but it also means that we have to fill those seats of teachers who are leaving the classroom. And it creates a little bit of a problem when plenty of teachers who have gone out 
and earned these advanced degrees in a lot of cases and built up student debt in the process really don't see classroom teaching as where they want their career to lead to. When you think about the average salary being $53,000, there's folks in Mississippi who are living, trying to get by a minimum wage or just something slightly above that. So when you hear $53,000, that sounds like a good amount of money to be able to have a household in the state. I think you're absolutely right. And there are some teachers who really had, and I've you know, had personal conversations with plenty of teachers from you know, very poor backgrounds who saw teaching as this very like, reliable profession where they know they could earn a decent living. Now, the problem with that, okay, we maybe see $53,000 and think, okay, that's actually not bad. That's greater than the household median income in Mississippi. But the problem is teachers, in order to earn the credentials to teach in a classroom, they have to go out and get a four-year degree. We all know that the cost of college has exploded, especially in the last 10 years. And so for teachers who have to go, and in some cases, go tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to earn these four-year degrees, that $53,000 salary is reduced tremendously by the amount of money that teachers have to pay in student loan payments and the increasing interest that accrues over time there. And, and so if we look at... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. So if we look at the average Mississippian who has a bachelor's degree, which is the minimum qualifications to be a teacher, I saw a study that about two years ago said that the average Mississippian with a bachelor's degree makes about $67,000. And so right there, you have this $15,000 pay penalty, which is essentially the pay cut that teachers take to teach in the classroom rather than taking another job requiring the same credentials. That is really what is leading a lot of teachers to consider these other economic opportunities. Torn Ballard is K-12 Policy Director for Mississippi First. In part two of our conversation tomorrow... These black teachers and teachers of color also tend to teach in our highest need districts. More on eyeing the exit survey tomorrow. Coming up, emergency officials use a mock disaster to prepare for a worst-case scenario. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. 
to prepare for emergency responses. State and local leaders conduct a tabletop planning session. It's a way to test interagency communications and logistics, as well as help develop insight into how the state and local governments can respond to crises. Last week, officials with the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, the Department of Health, and the city of Jackson took part in a mock crisis. MEMA Director Stephen McRaney tells our Kobe Vance what they're preparing for. Yeah, it was a great opportunity to get all the uh, services and, and all the cities, uh, counties, and uh, other state agencies are going to have to respond to any type of event, an all-hazard event. But but in this specific situation, we looked at the uh, OB uh, Curtis plant and chemicals uh, that are there. Uh, we wanted to make sure everybody knew what the basis of those chemicals were, what, what we were going to have to deal with, and then look at that second, third, and fourth order effect of the response. Uh, there can probably be some uh, evacuations are going to have to happen, sheltering have to happen. You know, we've got schools in those areas, neighborhoods and everything. So it was a good walkthrough today for all of these agencies, and, and they're the ones that are right there. The locals, it's going to start on them first, and we want to let them know as MEMA that we're reach back through the counties that uh, for those things they might need, reach back up. We can help and assist with those as we do in other emergencies, but let's have that local response, the checklist. Let's, let's meet the person today we're going to respond with tomorrow to help the public. How often do you all have these kind of uh, exercises? We do these year-round. Uh, we do it for hurricane season. We do it for severe weather uh, storms as, as they're coming up. And uh, any time a local jurisdiction, uh, county or whatnot, or city wants to have one of these. And this was this was driven by the locals. They they wanted to get together as a group and to work through a scenario so we, we, we could have a solution when, when that event actually happened. And how important is it to have this communication between MEMA, these local agencies, and state agencies that are also able to enact? As, as I told all the local agencies, the cities and the counties that are here in the exercise today, this is the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. We're here for every citizen. And by, by them making the contact today, we're, we're trading the business cards. We're getting those 1-800 numbers down that are always manned 24 hours a day, letting them know that we're here and we're available to help and to mobilize those things that they might need that they just don't have uh, every day at their, at their behalf. Can you tell us a bit about the situation today that y'all were, uh, the, the mock situation today that y'all were experiencing, and how would how would you rank the response by the agencies here today? Well, I think everybody within their own agency has a response already developed. They, they their response plans were already there. But when you look at, at uh, a chlorine tank, as we were looking at a one-ton cylinder that, that was going to – we went worst-case scenario on them today. I did not take – nobody took it easy uh, during this actual response. So by doing that, we also said, okay, well, Richland's going to have to work with Madison, okay? Uh, well, now we've got Madison County that's going to have to work with Hines County. So it's going to take a response from all of those agencies to come in and, and, and make something work. So they did a great job. Stephen McRaney is executive director of MEMA. For Melissa Faith Payne with the city of Jackson, these planning exercises allow her to make connections that will prove beneficial in future emergencies. I think it helps strengthen those relationships and that helps our response time. It helps to know exactly who you need to call. Um, 
how quickly to get in touch with them. You have numbers, you have text messages, um, and it only benefits the city of Jackson, the residents, and, and wherever that disaster is. So this was phenomenal. I'm glad we had this. Worst case scenario, you hope it never happens, but if it does, it's good to have these relationships in place. Is there anything that you're taking away from today that could be beneficial to future planning for disasters? Um, absolutely. Um, this worst case scenario just kind of showed some gaps in communication. Um, so one thing I did was um, meet up with lots of the different EMA directors because I had met them, didn't have their numbers or whatever, so that'll be beneficial in any disaster that we should have. Also, um, some things I hadn't thought of, you know, um, different agencies that maybe need to be called on different disasters that it never even crossed my mind. So this was super helpful with that. As a public information officer yourself, I wanted to get your thoughts on the engaging with the public aspect, be able to have that, you know, response and transparency with the public. What are your takeaways on those issues when it comes to these kind of disasters that are just pop up and you can't avoid them? Right. Um, one thing that Max said that I thought was amazing was that the more you, the more information you give your public information officer, the more information they can share with the public. So the more we know, the more we can share with the media so that residents will know. And then that leaves these emergency responders free to do what they need to do to attend to the disaster. Um, so it just shows how important the role of the PIO is, of course, um, but also how important it is to get that information out to residents who could assist in the disaster by staying away, you know, and by informing other people of what's going on. So, Anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians uh, or other municipality leaders that you think that could be useful for getting their own communities prepared for these kind of situations? These emergency response exercises are, are great. Um, it's just having all the people in the room to be able to talk, to listen, um, to have different takeaways, different um, input from different agencies, um, scenarios that you may have never thought of. Um, it can only benefit. There, there, there's no downside to this whatsoever. It's only an upside. Emergency officials say these trainings are held year-round, but this meeting was a request between several metro area municipalities. Coming up, January is Braille Literacy Month. We learn more about teaching the code to Mississippi's visually impaired youth. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. When you look at your vehicle, think of MPB. Need to get rid of your ride? Donate it by calling 877-MPB-THE-NUMBER-4-CAR. Need to have some work done on your truck? Listen to AutoCorrect Thursdays at 10, Saturdays at 11. An MPB license plate reminds you that MPB is with you wherever you go. Go to your county office and ask for an MPB car tag. MPB and cars, better together. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. January is National Braille Literacy Month. The code of raised symbols created by French educator Louis Braille is often used by visually impaired to read and write. Shelley Franklin teaches Braille and piano at the Mississippi School for the Blind in Jackson, the state's public school for the visually impaired. She tells our Lacey Alexander more about the code and how elevating Braille literacy can benefit everyone. When a student writes Braille, he or she will first start out using a Braille writer, which is mechanical. You can put paper in it and type on it, almost like you would have typed on the old-fashioned typewriter. Um, and they're able to feel their work as they write. As they get more advanced, 
Um, we might transition to an electronic braille display, which uh, is a device that can be connected to a phone or a computer, and it still uses the uh, six-key input that a braille writer would use, um, but it helps students to be able to produce work that can be read by someone who was sighted, since it's, it's used with a computer or, or an iPad. You said something really interesting a minute ago. You talked about uh, teaching students math using Braille. So when we talk about Braille, we're not just talking about, you know, the equivalent of an alphabet. We're also talking about punctuation, math symbols. That's so interesting. Talk to me a little bit more about how Braille can teach more than just letters and sentences. Sure. There is a separate code uh, that we use in Mississippi and several other states do as well, the Nemeth Code for Math and Science. Uh, notation. The numbers are written similarly to those in the literary Braille code, uh, but they are written in the lower part of the Braille cell. And um, it's used in traditional math that you would see in your in your younger grades, but as well as algebra, geometry, trigonometry, and it allows students to do the same things that their that their sighted counterparts would do. There's also a Braille music code too. And so I work on that some with my students in the piano class. So there are lots of things that can be done in Braille. Yeah, that's that's really interesting that you teach music to visually impaired students. Um, when you see these students kind of listening to the music and learning music in maybe a way that's we don't really see in day-to-day life, um, what does that kind of do for them? What does teaching them that and giving them that extra little bit of talent do for your students of all ages? I think they're, they, they become really excited that they're able to uh, basically do what other students would do. Um, and it gives them something to look forward to because most of my classes in piano are usually at the end of the day. Most of the time they're very excited to come and play the piano and to create, uh, to show that, that creative side that many of them have. So I think, they, I think they feel good about what they're doing. I think they're excited to share it. And I enjoy teaching them. We are talking about Braille Literacy Month, and that means that maybe people who aren't visually impaired would benefit from learning Braille as well. Can you tell me why everybody should know a little bit of Braille? Why is that important? I think it's important for everyone to know a little bit about Braille just because of where they might see it in public. Um, It's on elevators. It's written on signage for door numbers in, in public buildings. And I think it's um, it's just it's important for for everyone else to know about Braille, just like it's important for my my students who are blind to know something about print. It's everywhere. Print print is everywhere. Um, Braille is is not as widely available, but I think if more people knew more about it, we might see more of it. If more people knew more about it, it it might help with some of the misconceptions that people have about Braille who don't know it. That's a great segue into my last question. Um, what are some misconceptions about Braille? Uh, what would you like to educate our listeners on that maybe people misunderstand about what you teach? I think a lot of people, they just assume you can press a single dot, and it, and it doesn't matter what dot you press, and it's going to make the letter A. They, they don't understand that there is a certain combination to the dot. Uh, they also don't understand a lot of times how long it takes to produce a document in Braille. 
if, if I'm, you know, going to pretty document for, say, another teacher pretty quickly, it's going to be produced as quickly as somebody putting a, a piece of paper on the copier. So there's more of a process. But also I want people to understand, too, that just because Braille is a little different, it, it doesn't mean that those who read it, you know, have to read slower or can't learn as much when materials are given to people who need them in a timely fashion. Those who have them can keep up. Those who have them can understand what's taking place. Uh, And I think, I guess the, the, the last thing I would want people to understand is like that just as you would want something to be available in print yourself, that the same information should be as readily available in Braille to someone else who might need it. Uh, Shelly, are you visually impaired as well? I am. And one more thing for you. Is there anything that you would want your kids to know that you wish you knew as a younger person with a visual impairment? I think what I want my students to know and what I do try to tell them is that um, that just because you read Braille does not that's not an excuse for you doing something slower than someone else. And the more that you read now and the more that you learn now, the better off you can be in, in the future. Braille literacy is so important. It, it, most people who are blind who, who end up with jobs are, are very proficient with Braille. And unemployment in the, in the blind and visually compu- community is so high. And I think if we could increase the literacy, and I'm even thinking of myself and my students, if I could increase their literacy, then hopefully they will have a greater chance of having a job and being productive in society one day. Shelly Franklin, instructor at the Mississippi School for the Blind, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. Thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.